0: you know it was like jesus had come down to visit i mean he was the biggest name in in theater and everybody has a story because everybody was you know if they got a moment of interaction with him they were quivering with excitement
1: By the late 1970s, the Hippodrome was still in the warehouse out on 441, where they had made a name for themselves in Gainesville and the Southeast. But premiering a major playwright's work on their stage? That hadn't happened. Yet. Well, in 1979, Tennessee Williams came to Gainesville. But before we get to that, let me introduce myself. I'm your host, Ryan George, a graduate of UF School of Theater and Dance, currently living in New York City. My journey with the hip began back in 2010 when I was cast in Defiance during my last semester at the school. Through my experience with the Hippodrome, I've gone from cast member to company member to also a director. In the previous episodes, we've told you stories about the early days of the Hippodrome. Tennessee Williams is one of the foremost American playwrights of the 20th century. He became known for his play The Glass Menagerie in 1944. He then had a string of successes with the plays A Streetcar Named Desire, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, Sweet Bird of Youth, and The Night of the Iguana. Some of his shows were also adapted for the screen. Marlon Brando screaming, Stella! in the film version of Streetcar might be one of the most famous scenes in cinema. However, Tennessee was not experiencing the same level of success that he had in his early career. Hippodrome founder Bruce Cornwell described it like this.
2: I don't know. He, He had an adage in his life. He said, playwrights, have a first act, and they may have a very successful first act, but they rarely have a good second act, and he was in the second act of his writing career in his life, so he was, um, he had had a couple of Broadway flops, and he was really um, discouraged and gun-shy of the press, so Tennessee Williams had created what he was calling a new play, Um, it was called Tiger Tail*. And it was essentially not really a new play. What he had done is he had taken his film script, Baby Doll, and he had taken a one-act that he had written, Twenty Seven Wagons Full of Cotton, and he was trying to combine them. He wanted to create a full-length stage play using the same characters and themes and basically even the same plot. So he had written Tiger Tail, and Marshall had discovered it. Marshall knew had discovered it um, in our search for plays. And he thought it was a wonderful idea. And then, of course, we learned that Tennessee was living down in Key West, and uh, that he might even be available to come and work with us on it. Wouldn't that be awesome to have a collaboration with Tennessee Williams? So we got the rights, and Marshall made some adjustments and uh, you know um, modifications to the play. And uh, we, we made arrangements to bring Tennessee Williams into town. and. There's a lot to this story. So I'm gonna have to abbreviate it just to let you know that um, Tennessee was very gun shy. And so he came to Gainesville and working with him is a whole other story in and of itself.
1: And that's the story we're gonna tell in this episode, the time Tennessee Williams came to the Hippodrome. Before we begin, I'd also like to introduce my podcast colleague, Lauren Burrell Cox. Lauren's a film PhD candidate at UF, and the podcast project started when Lauren began collecting the Hippodrome's oral histories. Alright, let's get this show on the road. Act 3. The Hippodrome and Tennessee.
3: I found out that Tennessee Williams came to the Hippodrome in 1979 while reading old issues of the University of Florida student newspaper, The Independent Florida Alligator. When I first started doing research for this project, before I'd ever talked with any of the founders, I'll admit, I was shocked to learn that someone as well known as him had come to the Hippodrome, when it hadn't even been around yet for a decade. I was an English major in undergrad, so Tennessee Williams coming to Gainesville, that piqued my interest. What's it like to not only meet someone so renowned in your field, but then also to work with them? Tennessee Williams was immediately added to my list of questions. As I began speaking to the founders and other members of the Hippodrome community, I found that most of them did have a story about Tennessee. And they all had an impression of him, too. Before we fully dive into the Tennessee Williams stories, I need to give a proper introduction to Marshall New. Marshall isn't an official founder, but he became a very important member of the Hippodrome. Before joining the HIP, he was teaching at the University of Florida and working at the art gallery there. Actually, I think it's better if Bruce tells the story of how exactly Marshall got involved with the HIP.
2: So let me just tell you, the you know one of the principles of the Hippodrome, uh, he, he wasn't like right there at the inception, but he was definitely, he joined us very early on, was Marshall Newt. And um, it's a funny story how we got to know Marshall because uh, we were doing a production that Marilyn was directing called uh, The Secret Affairs of Mildred Wilde. And uh, Mildred would occasionally sort of lapse into these dream sequences and in one of them a gorilla appears and we were like oh god a gorilla how do we pull that off where are we going to find a gorilla costume and lo and behold somebody said contact this guy over in the art department because marshall knew he we think he has a gorilla suit we contacted marshall and marshall's response was you can have the gorilla suit but i come with it i want to be on stage and i want to wear the gorilla suit in the play And we said, okay, it's a deal, you know, and it worked out. And and sure enough, he was a fantastic gorilla, and the show was a hit. And uh, he fell in love with with what we were doing and decided to join us. And so uh, uh, the rest is history on that one, too.
3: The gorilla suit is quite a way to make an entrance. And like Bruce said, from that point on... Marshall was very involved with the Hippodrome. So in 1979, Marshall started working on an adaptation of Tennessee's Baby Doll and 27 Wagon Loads of Cotton. The was looking to do a stage premiere of the show.
4: And Tennessee was living at the time in Key West. And so we contacted him and he gave uh, Marshall permission to adapt it and uh, he was gonna come up and be in residence for this.
2: So his agent at the time, a guy named Mitch Douglas, um, said, all right, well, Tennessee's willing to come there and we'll make arrangements and we'll get all of these wonderful things lined up for you to be able to to work with him.
3: Marshall describes the experience of working with Tennessee like this.
0: Uh, Tiger Tail by Tennessee Williams, we premiered a play uh, of his and that got us a lot of attention and and gave us a sense of respectability. Uh, Tennessee Williams came to the Hippodrome for three days and uh, drank us all under the table and we he, he was very temperamental to say the least like a good
3: alcoholic would be. But even getting Tennessee to the Hippodrome ended up being a challenge.
0: So
4: on the appointed day, we went, Marshall and I went to the old Gainesville Airport. This was back when a baggage claim was outside. There wasn't real, there was like one little, little, itchy pity terminal. We went, saw the plane land and everything. We waited, the plane held up few people and we saw everybody get off and no Tennessee and we're looking and. We didn't have cell phones back then, and there was no faxes or email. We didn't know what the problem was, so we called and called and called. Finally, Tennessee's uh, manservant answered the phone and said, well, Tennessee wasn't sealing up to it today, so we'll possibly come tomorrow. We'll let you know. So tomorrow came and went, and uh, we didn't hear from him. Another day came and went. Finally, they said, we'll be on today's plane. So we scrambled down there and got him and took him to the Hilton, which was the Hilton on uh, 13th Street, down by Bivin Park. Uh, The other Hilton was obviously not built back then. And that was the best hotel in town. So we we got him, I don't know if they called it the presidential suite, but it was the best room they had. He was... uh, he was a little uh, cratchety. Uh, he'd been getting on in his years, you know, and he was, he could be out of sorts, and if he didn't have his wine, he, he could be a, a little bit of a handle to deal with. So during the course of rehearsals, he, um, he would sit in, and he seemed like things were going fine.
3: Once Tennessee actually got to the hippodrome, it wasn't quite what he expected.
0: And he saw the Hippodrome, and he thought, where am I? He kept saying, where am I? <laughs> because we were in the old, in the warehouse. And he met the cast, like I said, and some of them were younger than what he visualized in his, in the in casting of the cast. We thought it was gonna be a disaster, but fortunately, the production was top-notch. And he saw the theater, that it was in a warehouse, the outskirts of town and he met the cast and you realized the the actress playing the old woman was a young woman and to him it reeked of amateur uh, non-professional theater and it was to a certain extent except that by this time we had developed such a, a great repertoire of good actors around the south that i was able to draw from um, people that had worked in our plays earlier in their career and had gone on to New York and done work and,
3: um, and pulled them back to, to Gainesville. And there was a lot of talent in Gainesville. Marshall asked the then 15-year-old Malcolm Getz if he'd be interested in working on a song for the show.
0: There was a song in the play that, went, that one of the characters was supposed to sing, but there was no music that went with the song and I asked Malcolm if, because I was already aware of how, that he was over, you know, just full of talents. And I asked him to write that song and he did. And it was wonderful. And one of the characters sang it and playing, it was just, it was perfect. It was exactly what I was looking for. So, and Tennessee loved it too. I think he wrote a note to Malcolm said, I loved your music.
3: Malcolm also told me about the experience.
5: When they did Tiger Tail and Tennessee Williams came, Tennessee was a trip, and um, he was very small. He was very short. He always wore sunglasses. He always had his dog, and he had this southern accent like his characters do that you think is made up, but he he really did talk like this. He sort of had this sort of, like Maggie the cat, he talked like that. And Marshall came to me, you know, bear in mind I was 15, and he said, Tennessee has written a song for one of the characters and it needs, he wrote the lyrics and he needs some music. Will you set this to music? And I was so young, of course I was fearless. So he gave me a soundtrack to Blues in the Night because it was a blues song. And he said, write something in this vein. So I technically, I wrote a song with Tennessee Williams when I was 15.
3: Malcolm went on to have a successful career in theater and television, even being nominated for a Tony Award. He's now an acting professor at the University of Florida College of the Arts. Tennessee did have some edits when they were putting together the show.
0: He, uh, I, I had cut um, a, a page out of it because to speed up Act 1, because Act 1 was about twice as long as the second act, and uh, he was unhappy with that, but he wasn't really unhappy with that, he was just unhappy with premiering of play at the Hippodrome Theater.
3: Part of the reason Tennessee agreed to come to Gainesville was because he had visited the University of Florida in the 1940s. Coinciding with his visit to the Hippodrome, he also planned a reading at the university, which didn't exactly go well.
0: He was, he was near the end of his life. He died like three or four years later. He, uh, he was, as he said to me, I, I used to be an alcoholic, but now I just drink beer and wine. I thought, oh, okay, well, that's a, re-de- a new definition of alcoholism. He really wanted to come to the university because he had been here back in the 40s, been at at the University of Florida, and had made friends with some people in the English department, but they were all gone, long gone. And he, th- he thought he would have a reception, and it would be very formal, and it would be I mean, he was on the verge of getting the Kennedy honors that fall. So he he was now in a place in his life where he wanted all of these accolades to come down. I mean, he's, he was hoping for a Nobel Prize for literature and he was alienated, he, he was looking for a more, an exit that would be respectable. But he didn't get it at the University of Florida. He did a poetry reading and the audience was raucous and rude, and uh, he got very upset by that.
3: In fact, the whole lead-up to the event didn't go well, and neither did the reception afterwards.
0: The
4: faculty at UF, the theater department, said that they would host a reception in his honor, and we arranged for him to do a reading of his works, his poetry, at University Auditorium. And so after that meeting, he was supposed to meet with the faculty at U.S., and they were throwing a private reception for him. So I go get him at at the Hilton. He's late. He's late for everything all the time. So I get him, and we're driving in the car, him and I, back to uh, University Auditorium. And he says, Gregory, Gregory, I I forgot my wine. I got to have my wine. And I just... Tennessee, there's not really time. We're already late for this thing. So, uh, look, I'll pull into like a Seven We'll get you a bottle of wine there. He, he carried it around like Linus carried a blanket. He always had a bottle of wine with him. He looked, if you didn't know who he was, you just think he was some wino on the street. So we go up, uh, we get the wine, and then we take him to university auditorium. And he had this thing where he kind of like talk like this, and his speech had kind of degenerated from when he had the lobotomy forced on him in, uh, about 15 years earlier, and so he wasn't always coherent, you kind of have to know what he was saying to figure it out, so we go into that big cavernous university auditorium, and it's filled with uh, mainly freshmen and sophomores, Uh, looking for, you know, something from him, you know, some chestnuts and stuff. And so he goes into his... I introduce him, and then he goes into his thing about reading his poetry, which he's so proud of. But the problem was the poems themselves kind of were lyrical and rambling in, in the way they were written, and coupled that with his speech and it was just a nightmare, and he he had great longevity that night. He wanted to talk forever. Finally, I could see like the audience is a little restless. I go out there and close the show. I say, okay, well, we wish we could stay longer, but we have to event after Tennessee. Thank you all for coming, and, and I whisk him off the stage. He says, do you think I said enough? I said, yeah, you were fine, Tennessee, don't worry. And we go to this private reception in Wright's Union. There's these uh, faculty lounges in the Wright's Union. And we take them in there, and there is not one theater faculty at all there. None of them showed up for any of the readings or this party. But all of the kids that were in the auditorium had been invited, and they'd lined up along the corridor of... all with their copies of Glass Menagerie and Streetcar uh, and all of them, Rose Tattoo, all in their arms to have him autograph them. And I'm like, holy crap, this is not what I told them it was going to be. This is this is a nightmare is what this is. So he signed about 20 autographs out of, a, I'd say, oh, 300 kids waiting there. This is... Gregory, get me the hell out of here. So uh, we, uh, I apologize to everybody. I said, you know, because he's not feeling well. And, and uh, we whisk him out. He wants to go get some catfish. And so we take him on Waldo Road to one of these little catfish stands. And we had a really good night. It was really great.
3: The next day, the had scheduled a huge press conference with newspapers from all over Florida. This was the big time. Tennessee Williams was staging a show in Gainesville, but that didn't go according to plan either. Here's Greg and Bruce explaining what happened.
2: And Mitch Douglas, the agent says, oh yeah, Tennessee will be there at the press conference. Don't worry about that. I'll make sure he's there, you know? And then Greg and I actually went over to the hotel to pick him up and we this little voice you know, comes from from behind in the room. He says, Greg, I'm sick. I'm not going to the press conference today. And, uh, (laughs) And we were like, oh, no, what do we do? What do we do? So we went back and, I mean, we had writers there, we had reporters there, not only from the Gainesville Sun and all the local newspapers, but Jacksonville, the Miami Herald, the St. Pete Times, the Tampa Tribune, the Orlando Sun Sentinel. They were all there because Tennessee Williams was, you know, working at the Hippodrome in Gainesville. So we had to deliver the message that he had just, was not going to show up for this press conference. The headline of the, Tampa Tribune or the St. Pete paper, I don't remember which one, the next morning was, Tennessee Williams, bedridden in Gainesville with nervous exhaustion. (laughs) So, you know, they say bad publicity is better than no publicity, I guess, I guess we can chalk it up to one of those, one of those moments.
4: You know, that same evening, he called us to say that he's going back to uh, Key West in the morning. And we said, well, the, the plate doesn't open, Tennessee, you know, until you know, until this weekend. And, and this was like Wednesday. And he says, oh, no, 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 I'm not having a good time. You know, I'm going to go back. We scramble as to what to do. We know that there was this waiter at the Hilton that he was quite fond of. You know, Tennessee was, was gay, of course. And uh, we sent talked to the waiter and said, would you bring Tennessee? He always swims about 11 p.m. at night down in the pool. Uh, He likes to swim there at night when he's all alone. Would you bring him a bottle of white wine? They said, sure. Yeah, yeah, I'd be glad to do that. So he takes them uh, the wine that night. I don't know what happened, but they... They got along famously, and Tennessee agreed to extend his stay. The only more uh, two eventful things was he, he, during this course of rehearsal, he wasn't always enthralled with what was going on. But by the time we opened the play, he was
0: all on board for it, and the cast, and we just loved everything about it. Greg and I both were there. We both talked him into taking a bottle of, of wine and two glasses to Tennessee's room. And it kept him there overnight for for so he would be there for the opening night. Because he, what Tennessee saw, sold out dress rehearsal before the opening night, where he had a big dinner planned at a restaurant downtown in Tennessee was gonna be the guest. And he didn't show up for that either. I had to go get him and talk him into coming to the restaurant. So he arrived after everyone had eaten. But fortunately, everyone got had gotten well lubricated. So they all went out to the theater, including Tennessee, and they were so inebriated. They, they were just jumping with joy to be there and applauded him when he walked in. Greg was carrying a bottle of wine, standing out, and did Greg Taylor, Tennessee said, "Don't hold my arm. I'm not that far gone yet."
5: And so, opening night, he was sitting in the audience, and Marshall knew is very tall. Tennessee was very short, and um, the cast, Jennifer Pritchett, the cast all bowed. And then, of course, they motioned to the audience where Tennessee Williams was sitting. This was opening night. This is in the the, uh, warehouse, in the, yeah, in the warehouse. So they motioned to Tennessee, and Marshall took Tennessee by the arm and brought him down to the stage. And Marshall told us that as they walked onto the stage and he took Tennessee's arms, Tennessee said, Marshall, people will suspect.
3: (laughs) In the end, it seems like Tennessee thought the production went well. But of course, he couldn't resist making a couple more jokes.
0: In fact, When we came out of the opening night of Tiger Tail, which Tennessee ultimately was very happy with uh, because the audience loved it and that meant he did a good job in his mind. We came out and it was on a Friday night when they brought all the pigs in to market to ship out of the stockyards, which were just next door. So the place smelled like Pigs, and I don't know if you ever smelled pigs, but they have a very unique aroma collectively when you've got them in a group, and it's really pungent. And he came out and he said, "Going from the outhouse to the courthouse—that's <laughs> the move." He had seen that what was to be the future hippodrome. After
4: opening night, we had a black tie dinner at 12V. He comes in and says a few words, and we have a microphone, and he says a few words, and then everybody's, you know, so beaming with joy. They want to see him. It was after the play, and they're all so excited. He stays for about 30 minutes max, and then he's ready to go, and then he goes back to his hotel and flies back. Now, we never had any more dealings with him, but they published the play and gave us credit for it at the beginning, and that was the end of that and it was one of the highlights I think of anything that happened at that that old warehouse
3: in the car after the dinner, Marshall overheard what Tennessee planned to do with the new show.
0: I was in the back seat, and his agent was driving the car that we had rented for Tennessee's visit. Actually, I think we begged somebody to donate it and we were going back to the hotel, and it was as if I wasn't in the car. Tennessee said to his agent, you know, this this play could make me some money. We could get Roy Scheider to play that character. We could get Andy Griffith to play that character. Oh, and we could get that little girl that was in The Exorcist to play Baby doll. and we could go on the road with it. And it was like, well, thanks a fucking lot. <laughs> you know? We just put together a top-notch production, and you were thinking about casting, you know, Hollywood actors and taking it on the road. It, it just, uh, it, you know, it was, I just found it irritating at, at the time, but funny in the long run. Tennessee's the one who said that Holly, working in Hollywood was like climbing a ladder while somebody is stabbing you in the back, <laughs> and it's so true. <laughs> in the arts, that's certainly true.
3: The show was mostly a success with the Hippodrome's audience, even if some of the reviews weren't glowing.
0: We got a lot of press, interesting press, out of that. Maybe you've seen some of it. The Alligator, they published a terrible review of the play uh, and titled it. And they had a picture of of characters from the play reacting to a chicken on a kitchen table. And the title of the review was Tennessee Williams Lays an Egg. So we had to work, because he kept asking for any reviews, and we made sure he didn't get that one.
3: However, staging a world premiere of a Tennessee Williams play gave them even more credibility.
0: Tennessee's visit, which was so difficult, and and there were so many problems because we were trying to, to put our best face forward the community kind of rose to the occasion and started our, our program to develop and raise enough money to to get a matching grant from the national endowment for the arts and we did it by the deadline because uh, you know people loved us and and i say that and it sounds corny but You know, they were just so grateful that we were there in the community doing what we do, because even when we failed, we failed in an interesting way.
1: Tennessee's visit lent legitimacy to the Hippodrome, and they needed it, especially to make the big move downtown. Yeah,
0: that's what it was like when Tennessee came to the Hippodrome. Everyone has a story now. I have to say, without a doubt, that 10 years was the most creative time in my life. I've been an artist all my life and I've never had as much fun. I never looked forward to getting up as much every morning as I did during those years at the Hippodrome because it was so much fun making theater with friends. And like I said, the synergy that we had in those early days was phenomenal.
1: We still have more Hippodrome stories to share with you and new voices to hear from. We'll explore themes ranging from activism, community, creativity, and care. We'll also look to the future of the Hippodrome and imagine what it could be in its next 50 years. Funding for this podcast was provided through a grant from the Florida Humanities with funds from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent those of Florida Humanities or the National Endowment for the Humanities. Additional support from the Hippodrome and the University of Florida Center for the Humanities and the Public Sphere. It is hosted by Ryan George. It was produced by Gabrielle Byam, Lauren Burrell Cox, and Amanda Frazier. It was written and edited by Lauren Burrell Cox. Sasha Otison transcribed the interviews. Ash Phoenix Designs, Joshua Osborne, and Dina Tor designed the cover art. Special thanks to the Hippodrome founders whose voices made this project possible.
3: Thank you for supporting the alts.